Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with each other. We try to bring you a new speaker most weeks, but we have reserved a few slots during the year to catch up on health and healthcare news. I have a long list of items that I want to talk about today, but let's start with you, Harlan. What's got your attention? Thanks, Howie, and I'm eager to hear what you've got to say. I wanted to maybe talk about a couple articles I thought people might enjoy just hearing about some of the science that's coming out. And I wanted to start off with this one that many people may have heard about in the news, and that's about the effect of colonoscopy screening on the risks of colorectal cancer. The reason this study is so important is because we've been advocating for colonoscopies for decades, and yet the evidence base for them is honestly relatively weak. I mean, it makes sense. It's sensible that colonoscopies prevent cancer makes sense. I mean, it's early detection and it should help us find things in ways that, you know, can prevent cancer down, down the line. But, but really the evidence base hasn't been great. So this has been considered a landmark study across many countries where we could say, let's randomize people to an invitation for colonoscopy, recognizing that most people or a lot of people who get invited will have it. And let's follow them over time and see what happens and try to answer this question more definitively. What is actually the benefit of colonoscopy? Because Again, we've accepted it as, as gospel that we should be promoting colonoscopies, but, but you know, that there has been some uncertainty and some debate about it. And, and the fact you could do this trial recognize that. I mean, the ethical board approved this trial suggests that there is a degree of uncertainty about it. So that's what this study sought to answer. Let me just go through this a little bit and explain a little bit why, why it's complex. I don't want to take you know, too much time, but just to give people a quick summary. So this was about almost, 85,000 people from Poland, Norway, and Sweden. And what they did was they took about a third of them and they sent them invitations for colonoscopy. Now, it's an interesting design because they didn't consent people at first. So what they did was they just sent out the invitations and then those people who responded to the invitations, they then consented them in the study and so that they were, they were part of this. And what happened was that among the people who were invited, a, a, a proportion of them, you know, decided to go ahead, it was 42%, underwent the actual colonoscopy. So in the invitation, 42% are go to the colonoscopy. In the other group, it turns out not many people actually underwent the colonoscopy. And so they continued to follow people for a decade. And what they found was of all these people that they were following in the 10 years of follow-up, there were 259 people who developed colorectal cancer in the invited group, in the group that was invited to undergo the colonoscopy, and 622 in the usual care group. Now that may sound pretty impressive. There were a lot more cancers that were found in the group that wasn't invited to the colonoscopy. But when, when you dig into this a little bit further, you see that actually it's a, it's a pretty small effect. It's less than 20% lower rate in the non-invited group. And when they looked at death from colorectal cancer, there were no differences. And so, I, you know, many people in the field found this quite disappointing. By the way, one of the things that's interesting is colorectal cancer the recommendations largely come from what we call observational studies, cohort studies, just trying to figure out what happens in the population among people who get colonoscopy and people who don't. It's not the same quality of evidence that you see in drug trials where we actually randomize people. So this was a randomized trial for screening. So it actually is higher quality evidence than we've seen before. There has been prior evidence about sigmoidoscopy, which is looking a little bit into the, just the end of the colon, but, but not so much on colonoscopy. And then I'll just quickly to say to you, the, the reason that, the, you know, there was a lot of backtracking on the trial was because they also did what's called a per protocol analysis. So they, they looked at the people who underwent colonoscopy 
and tried to make some sort of conclusions about, well, the invitations are good, but only less than half underwent the colonoscopy. Let's just look at the colonoscopy group and try to make an estimate of the benefit. And in that case, they come up with a little bit of a bigger benefit when you just look at that group. But actually, they've converted it to an observational study at that point because you don't have the advantage of the randomization anymore. You're saying, I'm going to look at a group that decided to have the colonoscopy, and you're going to compare that to the control group and try to come up with some some sense of an estimate, but it's no longer the high-quality evidence of the randomized trial. So, so whether that backtracking was justified or not is, is subject to, to discussion. I will say in the New England Journal of Medicine, the conclusion to the article is pretty clear. In this randomized trial, the risk of colorectal cancer 10 years was lower in participants who were invited to undergo screening than among those to no screening, but then they didn't put the rest, but there was no difference in deaths. And, and so, you know, I think we're left with a a landmark study, but uh, some uncertain results. I don't know how you read this study, Howie, but it, it's kind of evoked a lot of controversy. Yeah, no, the only thing I, th I thought about with this is our understanding of the development of, of colorectal cancers is premised on the idea of finding polyps really early that will turn into cancers 10, 15 years hence. Um, and that a true screening program is not screening for the cancer itself per se, but screening for the precancerous adenomatous polyps. And so I did think this is a, actually a positive study, but the more important thing is gonna to be to follow these individuals 20 years hence, 25 years hence, because that's when you should expect to see the real positive effects in those groups. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and they raise it in the paper that, you know, and in the editorial that they really need, maybe there needs, is a need for longer follow-up. Another issue, by the way, is it, it's not innocuous to have colorectal cancer. So, you know, there's a big hit on your quality of life. Even if you survive it, it's a lot to go through. So that that's not nothing, you know, to avoid. And then, you know, I, I think the, the other issue is just that the numbers are small. So, right, so a lot of people have to undergo the screening in order to find one of these things that you might act on. It, it, it's a substantial issue if you have colorectal cancer, but, but um, you know, I think this is gonna raise a lot of concerns. The, the, the other issue is that we've got new technology coming too, which is you can test stools for, you know, evidence colorectal cancer in ways, not just the blood, but actually, you know, we, the, the sensitivity has been increased by looking at remnants of the, of the cancer and so forth. And so, the, you know, I think these advanced molecular techniques may actually supersede the need eventually for colonoscopy. But, you know, important study, lots of discussion. I think we're not quite quite decided exactly what it means yet. And, and one of the things for our listeners to remember is that, like, we've been doing this now for 40 years, and uh, yet we don't have all the answers about something as simple as does it work and how it works and how effective is it. Um, you know, it's four decades at least of doing screening colonoscopies in a population-based way. So anyway, Howie, what's, what's something you want to talk about today? Yeah, I want to give a couple of quick updates to our listeners. We talked in July and August about monkeypox and polio, so I want to give a very quick update on those. Uh, first, in terms of monkeypox, you know, when we first started talking about this, even earlier than that, our concern was that we could have a real outbreak. The concerns were that, were that it was going to spread to multiple populations, including children. People talked about it spreading in schools and daycare and so on. 
and it didn't come to pass. And it didn't come to pass for a number of reasons. It turns out that it was not that infectious in populations other than those through intimate and sexual contact. Um, and it turned out that we could vaccinate people a lot earlier than we thought we would. And it turned out there is acquired immunity and that behavioral changes can occur at the same time. There was a lot of good science that came out that led us to that point. Um, and here we are now where the outbreak in New York City in particular is down about 96% from its peak. And it may in fact be completely contained in the next few weeks uh, down to zero. It doesn't mean we're gonna eradicate it from the population. And this is not to say that it can't be spread through non-sexual, non-intimate contact, but just that that type of spread is gonna be very unusual and it will not lead to outbreaks. And so we learned a lot from it. And from my point of view, um, I, you know, I hope that some of the lessons that we learned will be that we need to do a better job of explaining this to the public as we go. Uh, we need to be able to be honest with the public about what we know at the time that we know it. We have to put aside political correctness, so to speak, but certainly think about how we give good, consistent messaging and avoid people giving bad messaging. And we also have to acknowledge that we, we manage this a lot better than people were predicting early on. And let me just say a couple of words about polio, and then I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Polio too, when, when we first heard about the cases that were announced in, in uh, late July, early August, uh, we learned about this young man uh, who was unvaccinated, being infected by a vaccine-derived polio virus. He had been infected by somebody who had been vaccinated elsewhere through the oral, oral vaccine. Um, and we thought that was gonna be the tip of the iceberg because as you know, somewhere between one and 200 and one in a thousand infected individuals actually develops uh, poliomyelitis. And we thought this is tip of the iceberg and it got even worse over the ensuing months because we found wastewater sampling in multiple counties in upstate New York and then in New York City as well. And the good news here too is that even though we obviously know a lot of people have been infected by this vaccine-derived polio virus, we are not seeing paralytic polio cases. And we're in a situation right now where this too seems to be managed reasonably well. We still need everybody who's unvaccinated to get vaccinated, but this too is not the outbreak people were worried about when we first announced this. Um, Howie, I wanted to ask you just a couple quick questions. One is, do you think that the WHO declaration of monkeypox as a global public health emergency was justified? I mean, they pretty quickly moved to that, and that was a pretty unusual declaration. I mean, we that was reserved for polio, SARS-CoV-2, and then monkeypox. You know, that, that was the third one that they had declared a public health emergency on. Do you think that declaration was, was justified? Yeah, so they have a... Um a, a very specific set of parameters that they use for that. And it means that outbreaks are occurring in multiple countries at simultaneously. Um, and I'd have to go back and look at the specific language, but it's something along those lines. I would rather them have a lower trigger than a higher trigger for this specific issue about a new, you know, a new infectious agent or one that we haven't dealt with in a long time cropping up in multiple nations at the same time that are disparate, not, not you know, uh, Norway and Sweden, but rather multiple countries throughout the world. And in the case of monkeypox, at least at the time we had cases in Africa, in Europe, 
in Asia and in the United States, at the very least, as I recall. Uh, in the case of polio, we have it also in multiple continents. Uh, and if you look at the data on vaccine-derived polio, it's been even scarier because prior to this period, we had almost no cases in the UK or the United States. It was all relegated to Pakistan, Africa. Um, yeah, at Pakistan and Africa, pretty much. Yeah, I think the polio declaration was pretty long-standing, and then the SARS-CoV-2 was on top of that. The monkeypox was interesting because you know they did it in July. It, they, the, the leadership went against the the WHO emergency committee, which had actually decided and voted against recommending public health emergency of international concern. That you know the justification was more than seventy countries, but most of it was non-endemic and. And it really wasn't clear about how it was going to spread. I don't mind that they have a low threshold, but I am concerned about alarm fatigue too, because I, I felt in a way the public took this as, okay, here's another one. And what's the next one, next one. And it was sort of, you know, kind of being filtered out in a way. Not that we shouldn't have had a strong response. And, and the reason people may wonder like, well, why do you care about this declaration? And it's because it, it really galvanizes resources and focuses attention and, and brings to bear a lot of action on a particular problem. Now we've got lots of problems of health throughout the entire world. so. You know, no one's standing still, but but it, it was a big statement to say that that should be that declaration. And then the, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Howie, was to what extent do you think where we are today with monkeypox is a result of the response versus, you know, the thing kind of just, you know, has smoldered and, and I'm said it gone away by any means. But but, you know, have we really done anything that's caused it or is it just the natural evolution of this infection right now through the population? I mean, I, I happen to believe it is something that we did because I think this was so deeply infecting the gay community that the gay community was mostly paralyzed by it for a few months. And I think they did respond. And during that time, they got vaccinated. Those that were infected developed immunity. Um, and so I do think that we've actually seen a significant impact from both behavioral change as well as a vaccination campaign. Um, I think the awareness of it probably helped a little bit, getting doctors just to diagnose it a little bit better at a certain point. But remember, we were diagnosing over 70 cases a day in New York uh, for several weeks, um, and now we're down to averaging around three. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it's always hard to tell exactly even, you know, what exactly causes what within a, a pandemic. We look at different countries. You know, you may have seen that piece that Topol has written about comparing U.S. and Japan. I mean, very different experiences and trying to figure out exactly what was that the host, the, the virus, the actions, the policies, you know, it's, you know, we'll spend a lot of time, yeah. It's a, it's a good question to ask though, right? I mean, we've gone through this enough times where people have said, are the masks having any effect? Are the vaccines having any effect? And I think the data does become compelling at a certain point when it comes to COVID. And I think the data to me at least seems compelling when it comes to monkeypox, particularly going back, you and I both talked about the paper uh, by, I think one was by Greg Gonzalez's team and then another one by another group pointing out that the reproduction uh, rate for monkeypox was actually quite low in an overall population sense. It was probably high among gay men that were very sexually active, and it was probably definitely was negative in other individuals. And I think that helped us a lot, but we still had to tamp out the outbreak in that high-risk group. And I think we helped do that between the vaccines, uh, acquired immunity, and behavioral change. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So what do you, so, so back to you, what's, what's your next uh, paper that you want to talk about? Yeah, so next topic I wanted to talk about was uh, something that's also, 
I find quite curious, which is a lot of discussions around the importance of circadian rhythms in, in our approach to, to diet and to, to, for example, when we should be taking pills and so forth. I don't know if you, you've seen this sort of literature that says, I mean, this is the whole thing about, you know, should we be eating in the morning or should we be eating at the night? Should you front load breakfast or should you skip breakfast and be doing, uh, you know, heavy on dinner? And I saw a couple of articles that were coming out recently that, again, we're going to go... It was kind of to and fro, you know, there have been some articles that have suggested breakfast is important. <laughs> some articles that come out and said, no, that's not really true. We really shouldn't be eating till late. And I wanted to, to go back to a study that was uh, presented in the late summer that I thought, you know, was one of the, actually the most interesting studies I've seen around when should you take your blood pressure pills. And I just wanted to unpack it a, a little bit more, you know, because I thought people might be interested in this. And they may have heard something about saying like, hey, you know, really should take your blood pressure pills before you go to sleep at night. And, and part of the rationale for that is the recognition that there are, are many patients with, with hypertension whose blood pressure doesn't follow the usual pattern of declining while they sleep. So, you know, for under normal circumstances, I hate to use the word normal because everyone's like a little bit different, but, but typically when people go to sleep, your heart rate slows and your blood pressure drops. But there are some people that don't what we call dip at night. And these people, guess what? They're called non-dippers. So, you know, and, and some of the thought was, yeah, we, we could be giving everybody ambulatory blood pressure monitors and measuring the blood pressure all the time. One day we will actually probably on our wrist have blood pressure monitors that are cuffless. But but right now, you know, the idea was just, it's probably a good idea just to have people take it at night. It's maybe the best time to control their blood pressure. So somebody did this study, guess what? They called it the TIME study, where they randomized uh, just a little over 20,000 people who were being treated with hypertension to either taking their pills in the morning or in the evening. Now, by the way, some people listening may say, but I take pills twice a day and, and I'm taking them different regimens. And sure, you know, there are that, that group of people too. But in this case, they were, they were, taking people who were taking pills at one time of day and they they sort of were this group was 65 years old on average and and their blood pressure wasn't that high at the start remember these are all treated individuals the blood pressure was about 135 or so systolic blood pressure and it was a pragmatic what they call pragmatic study they went into primary care clinics and they basically just brought a bunch of people together and they said hey we just we're not sure when the best time to take the pill is would you mind being part of this trial take it morning or evening so they followed them up for about five years and guess what no difference, no difference when, when they took the pill. So what, what I like about the study is there was becoming a lot of urban myths about this, you know, the, and, and, and by the way, this study does have some others that counter it, but, but this was a pretty large definitive study of typical people in practice who are taking blood pressure pills. And it just shows that we can, you know, start to create stories about how, you know, all this stuff gets more, much more complicated. But in this case, what the important thing was that, that you were taking your pills, like, you know, and if somebody finds it more convenient to take it in the morning or at night, that's more important than like telling them you have to do it this way and then having them forget or have it be inconvenient for them. And again, you know, I think the, the central theme here is, yeah, you know, maybe we will learn one day how to personalize to each individual the exact time and nature of the meds, but, but largely, at least on average, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a dominant benefit to, to pick one or the other. So anyway, I, I like this this study because they took the time to answer a question that has been bugging people, but, you know, and really provide good evidence to, to help people. And so when I see patients now, I say, it doesn't matter. Most important thing is if you're on blood pressure pills, you know, and you need them, then take them.
Yeah, and it gets to a, you know, you raise a point just again, I, you know, in my own class, I continue to quote Mark Pauly from like 30 years ago saying that only about a third your, of Your professor at UPenn, right? It was your professor at UPenn, Mark Yeah, Pauly. Mark Pauly, who's, who's really a, a health economic professor there, but he used to love this quote of about one third of healthcare is strongly evidence-based. And, um, and I still use that quote, and I always say, I don't know if it's changed, but my feeling is that it's not, like that we grow, we do so much more over time that we're still missing a lot of evidence. And by but what I mean by strong evidence base is like we don't even have answers to questions about whether seven days is better than nine days or is better than 12 days for antibiotic therapy. We just, we run the trial at seven days, it works, and we stop there. Uh, and the questions that you're asking about timing of dosing um, are the same types of questions. We don't have all the answers that we should have at this point, and we don't have the financing mechanism in place to incentivize people to do the types of studies all the time. So what's your next topic? Yeah, so um, the October issue of Health Affairs is focused on disability and health. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, partly because my sister is uh, profoundly deaf due to congenital rubella syndrome. I sit on the disabilities committee for Yale University. I'm, I'm interested in the topic more generally. And in this issue, there were three sort of quick hits that I'll just mention, you know, give you a sense of the challenge of disability uh, medicine, basically. One is that people with disabilities are frequently, frequently, like more than the majority, not appropriately accommodated in healthcare settings, often receiving substandard care. And in some cases, they refused care by their physicians. And that came from a focus group study done by our former student, our colleague, who's now a professor at Northwestern, Thara Lagu. Um, and we'll, we'll try to get her on the podcast sometime in the next few months. Um, the second study, was about sign language services. And they found that they were unavailable in almost 60% of substance use facilities and more than 40% of mental health facilities. And again, you know, if you think about that, when you're dealing with a deaf population and you're not able to communicate with them appropriately and you're counting on family members in many cases to be their translator uh, in the most sensitive situations, this can run into a serious problem as well. And then the third hit from that issue was a study that looked at disabled physicians, which are only 3% of the total, which is to say that they're underrepresented compared with the general population. They were substantially more likely to experience mistreatment or abuse from their colleagues and their patients when compared with physicians without disabilities. And, you know, they raised the issue, uh, in that issue, they actually raised the possibility, like, how do we fix this? How do we get this better? And, and I would just say one of the issues is about financing of medicine. We mandate some things through the ADA to tell people they have to do things, but we don't actually compensate them for them. So physicians are actually disadvantaged when they're having to deal with somebody who requires some accommodations. Uh, I'm not excusing when they refuse it, but you can understand why it works against them. And then people are very afraid to lodge ADA complaints or lodge complaints uh, using the American with Disabilities Act, a complaint against the practice, I think partly because a lot of people fear doctors. A lot of people know they may have to go back to a doctor and they don't want to lodge a complaint, so it doesn't happen. Uh, and we need to do a better job. I think some of it goes back to medical education, what we can do uh, in our own medical schools, in our own residencies, and some of it has to be from a policy point of view, perhaps compensating people appropriately for the 
Yeah, I think these are really good points, How I've often thought that we should have medical students and all of us throughout our training go to an appointment, you know, with some sort of prosthesis that, that you know, restricts our ability to hear or, or blinds us, you know, so we can't see or are sitting in a wheelchair so we can't walk. Because I, I think that it's important to see through the eyes and to live through the experience of people who are encountering these kind of challenges and understand what it's like when you aren't of that world you know then you, you tend to do things or arrange things and arrange the clinic in ways that can be wholly insensitive at best and and really damaging and, and inhibiting at worst and so I'm really glad that you're ringing this bell. It's it's something that needs to be addressed. And, you know, we are seeing people who are ill. And there's all sorts of ways that, that they have limitations as a result of their illness. Brain fog is another one, by the way. I mean, you're talking about sensory. But, but there are people, you know, and you sit there and think, like, well, can't you read the sign or can't you follow directions? Well, some people can't do that very well because of the way they feel. And so, you know, I think it's it takes a whole redesign of the way that we approach this. Uh, in order to be much more, not just accommodating, but welcoming of people, regardless of the situation that, that they're in. And, and the ch challenge, just, I don't want to say challenges. I mean, it's just the lives they lead, right? It's just the lives they lead. So, you know, are we attuned to be able to provide the best care for each person, given who they are? Yeah, look, I, all I can tell you is that I've listened to my sister tell me what situations have been like for her when she gets care, and it is very frustrating. She has lived this life her entire life where people will talk to her children at the table at a restaurant and also talk to her children at a medical uh, visit if, if they're there, and that is not the way healthcare should be delivered. It's, a, it's a, a humorous theme in the movie Coda for those who haven't seen Coda or might want to see Coda, an Apple TV production a humorous scene where the, the uh, patient is being seen for a sexually transmitted disease or something like that, if I recall correctly. And uh, the child is brought in, it's an adult child, but the child is brought in for translation purposes and it leads to, you know, some hilarity. Uh, that's a really, really good movie. And I, I think it does, th that kind of movie, I think increases sensitivity to, the, to, to what people face. But again, you know, in the, one of the problems we have, and from the physician point of view and nurse point of view, it's hard. You know, if you get 15 minutes in a visit and you've got no tools or, or support, that's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's an impossibility to provide the kind of care that that, that, that kind of person might need. So anyway, a person who's facing, you know, a person who has, like I said, it should be not about facing challenges. It's about that's who that person is. Can we deliver the best care to each individual given who they are? And that, that requires some flexibility in the system that is increasingly inflexible. Agreed. So Howie, I know yep. you got one yep. more topic that's uh, on your mind that you'd like to share. And I know we're getting close to the, to the end of uh, this podcast, but go ahead. What's, uh, what's your last one? Yeah, so this is a, a more controversial topic and it's something that um, you know we see day to day on social media and beyond. We're living through a time right now where uh, being transgender is increasingly socially acceptable. Uh, I wish it was completely socially acceptable. It turns out when you look at surveys, uh, it varies considerably by political party, by age, by uh, education level, but it is increasingly socially acceptable. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is being used 
is a political opportunity for those who prey on fear, thrive on anger, uh, and the outrage machine has been shifted into high gear by a Twitter account called Libs of Tic Tac, run by a woman named Chaya Raychek in Brooklyn, uh, which is you know the city of my birth. Uh, so I want to say a few words about this because they are um, feeding misinformation all around and trying to get outrage. So gender-affirming care for minors, for those below the age of 19, mostly involves counseling and may involve medical treatment, and in relatively rare circumstances, and for older teenagers, may in fact involve breast surgery. It's in tiny numbers, but it does happen. The specialty societies have weighed in on this and have uh, feel really strongly about the recommendations they can make, and they actually clearly do not recommend genital surgery for children. Uh, but this hasn't stopped these accounts from trying to uh, enrage people about the possibility that this may be going on. The state of Arkansas has recently outlawed gender-affirming care for adolescents. Um, that includes, you know, you know, just uh, behavioral therapy. Um, and I was truly grateful to see John Stewart tearing apart Arkansas's law meticulously in an interview with their attorney general. You know, and going back to what we've talked about several times on this episode and prior episodes, I have no doubt that we will look back in 50 or 100 years and see that we could have treated these populations better, we could have managed these better, but these are also populations that have high suicide rates and we don't have 50 or 100 years to make the best decisions we can make, so we have to make them based on the best evidence we have at the time, and that is the direction that we're heading in right now. And I just think it's very important that we need to leave these decisions to the parents, to the adolescents, and their physicians using the best available evidence and the guidelines of specialists and specialty societies that is available at this time. So what do you think tangibly, I mean, you know, the nation's being torn apart and, you know, these, these are major issues. I think the question is, can we get consensus from the medical community about what the right thing to do is? And, you know, can we depoliticize this and talk about this from a point of view of healthcare and medicine? Or is it intrinsically going to be politicized no matter what we do? Look, I think that what we've learned over the last few years is that all of evidence-based medicine can be politicized and people will use good and bad scientific studies to advance their own agenda. We just saw that last week in the state of Florida where the Surgeon General used a non-peer-reviewed study to recommend that adolescents and young male adults not get uh, vaccinated. It doesn't mean that, that his ultimate conclusion couldn't be correct, but we have no real evidence to support that at this time. And I think this is a good example of a time where we as scientists need to present data, we need to be able to explain things to people, and we need to continue to have humility about what we know and what we don't know. Yeah, so maybe this gets to the point that you've made a lot of times, which is, you know, we need to have a voice on social media and in the public press and other places in order to try to help combat misinformation and, and help people make informed choices. Again, we're not trying to tell each individual what they should do, but we're 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 concerned that when the state weighs in on health, personal health decisions, it gets complicated. And, and yeah, and I, I, look, I think the idea that the government should be stepping in to prevent physicians, the adolescents, 
and the parents of those adolescents from doing what is seen to be in the best interest of that adolescent, we're getting to a very, very dangerous zone and we should be wary about that. Yeah, challenging. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E, that's H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. And I'm at the Howie, that's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu emba. So one last thing I forgot to mention on the top, but I, I learned this right before we went on the podcast. Uh, your colleague and mine and our podcast guest of March uh, of this of this year, Emily Wang, just won a MacArthur Genius Grant uh, oh my for God, her work I didn't even on that. incarcerated That's... populations and chronic health uh, and management. And so that is an incredible accomplishment. And I strongly recommend that our listeners go back and listen to that episode. And I am, am grateful to have learned from her. And congratulations to her. Yeah. And, and rather than say an accomplishment, because I think that really actually it's a great decision by the MacArthur Foundation to invest in someone who's doing such consequential work in such a challenging area and is doing so so effectively. I mean, I, I, Emily inspires me. I, I love what she's doing and, and I'm so excited to hear that news. I didn't know it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, that was great and uh, well said, Harlan. Yeah. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They're terrific. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks, Harlan. Talk to you soon.